0: You're listening to the Erasing Shame podcast, season two. We are erasing shame by replacing it with honest talk about healthy living, emotionally, relationally, mentally, and personally. Let's get started. This is DJ Chuang, host of the Erasing Shame podcast. We're uh, into our second season and so glad that you could join us. And what we like to do here is to have honest talk about healthy living, emotionally, relationally, mentally, and personally. And today we are honored and privileged to be joined by uh, Dr. Pong Rhodes, and uh, she is in Minnesota. So welcome, Pong. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you, DJ. It's good to be here.
0: And uh, we, we are going to talk about um, healthy living in a Hmong American community. And, uh, uh, well, let's, let's hear uh, the background of your story so our li- listeners and viewers can uh, get to know you and get to know the Hmong Americans.
1: Sure. Thank you. Um, so I know, DJ, when you and I first talked and got introduced to each other, the whole idea of even names came up. And mm-hmm. some of you, you, you probably may know me as Dr. Pang Fuo, which is the way you would pronounce my name in Hmong. Uh, others of you would know me as Pang Fuo, and then others as Pong. Um, so multiple names in the community, as well as even in my personal life. Uh, and that's just by way of saying that there's a multiplicity, there's a complexity to my story, as I think yeah. is true for many immigrants and for Asian Americans as well. Um, So I am Mo, my family is originally from Laos, and before that, my ancestors came from China. Mm. So we are people who are kind of marked by being immigrants and refugees and not really having a settled country.
2: Um, Mm. So
1: I am one of many generations that has moved around. Uh, My family came to the United States in 1976, and I turned five when we arrived. So I got to start in kindergarten all the way up. And some people would consider me uh, second generation because I grew up speaking English. However, as a five-year-old, I was already fluent in Hmong. So I myself consider myself 1.5 generation. Mm I grew up in a really small town in Iowa. And so again, just the context of my growing up was bicultural right away and learning to adjust. So as a five year old socializing into the Hmong community as well as learning to socialize into the dominant culture, uh, that was interesting and it has really shaped who I am. Uh, My brain thinks in English but some of the metaphors mm. I use, are am very um, just visual, and mm. so a lot of that is long. And the way I tell stories is very uh, circular, which is kind of long in my own, you know training and in thinking as well. So I like that I have this complexity in me.
0: <laughs> well, that's a rich, uh, uh, a rich history and experiences that you can bring to people of uh, a wider range of life. And uh, for many of us uh, who have an immigrant history, uh, it it can be quite challenging to navigate multiple cultures. And uh, to have someone who's lived it is uh, a very valuable thing. And so the Hmong Americans uh, don't get talked about as much as some of the other Asian American groups that are more populous. And I think uh, with Hmongs being the minority of minorities, the immigrants of immigrants, refugees of refugees for so much of their history, there's something that we can really learn from the Hmongs. So uh, share with us what, um, what it's been like for the Hmong American experience and what, is, uh, what are some of the struggles that they face in particular in adjusting to American life?
1: Sure. You know, much of the early history books that were written about the Hmong would say that we've always been the outsider wherever we've lived, whether it was in Northern China and then moving down to Southern China, uh, then moving into Laos, Vietnam, Burma, that area, southern um, Southeast Asia, that we've always been seen as the, the outsiders who didn't have a, a place in the culture, didn't belong. So I think that that historical trauma of being displaced and not having a home nation, not having a visible national leader, uh, that has kind of seeded into our psyche of survival. Wherever you go, don't assimilate completely, but stay kind of in the, in the down low so that you, you escape the radar. Um, so kind of learning to conform while rebelling. I don't know how you can do that, but we Hmong have kind of perfected that. Uh, fit in, but rebel in your own way so that you remain distinct. Uh, so okay. that's an interesting part of even the way that I've been shaped, that I can you know, fit in in my uh, workplace, and yet in my mind and in how, how I view myself is very distinctly Hmong, or that I wanna maintain that.
0: Oh, that's really fascinating because uh, often for the second generation, those that are born in America and have an Asian heritage, they have a difficult time holding on to their heritage and their identity. And, and yet the Hmongs are able to do that. And, and you mentioned workplace. So what kind of work do you do now um, that, that can inform our listeners? Yeah. on? Uh,
1: my, my primary job is I'm a professor and I teach at a local university called Argosy. And I teach marriage and family therapy. So on the side, I also have a small private practice where I see primarily couples, but also individual and families. And the majority, almost 90% of my clients are Asian American. And because I live in the Twin Cities, where we have the greatest concentration of Hmong in the United States, um, right here. So then I have quite, quite a large number of my clients are Hmong. Uh And I'm just beginning to see in the last two or three years, second-gen Hmong coming in for therapy, uh, seeking Mm. it out.
0: Yeah, and I'm guessing you're fluent bilingual and you're able to provide your services to both generations?
1: I am fluent in Hmong and I think that has really helped being, you know, that when we came here, I was already fluent. I already knew the language and then learning English. So I dream in English, but I, I can very much uh, converse in Hmong as well.
2: Oh, that's, so that's my, good.
1: clients my, usually will do a little mix of Hmong and English.
0: Neat. That's so neat. So, um, as, as you work with Hmong Americans and you live amongst Hmong American in a multicultural community, um, what, um, let's see. Oh, I lost my train of thought. Um, I had a good question all set up. It'll come back. um, (laughs) It'll come back as as I uh, ramble through. But um, so, oh, so how, uh, in working with people, uh, how do you help uh, people who are just surviving and they've got such a a strong mindset to hold on to that? uh, How do you help them to say that life can be more than just surviving? You can move towards thriving.
1: Yeah, I think part of the um, people coming to see me is they, they're already realizing that.
2: Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm.
1: They don't want to just survive. The, we have a saying in Wall that marriages can become a situation where you're just two rotting logs holding each other up. Mm. And so one of you can't leave or the other log will fall, but that's just life. You just want to stay standing up. And many people are getting to the place where they're like, we don't want to just be a rotting log. We want to thrive. We want to be alive and to um, produce and be healthy and happy.
2: Um, Mm -hmm.
1: It's interesting that this idea of happiness has really entered our uh, vocabulary as well as our way of life and want, you know, our wants. Mm -hmm. And so this idea that in my marriage, I want to be happy as an individual. I want to be happy in my job. I want to be happy. And that can, that can actually create generational rift because the first generation or my parents' generation may be like, you don't need happiness.
2: Mm. As long as
1: you're fed and you have a job and you can feed your children, you should be happy. That should be enough for happiness. And so this idea of, Thriving and using all your gifts and all your potential and availing yourself of all the resources so that you can thrive. That's a new concept to like my parents' generation. However, for the second and third generation, that's part of the acculturation that has happened, that they are much more open to availing themselves of all the resources available and opportunities available.
0: Yeah, so we'll come back to the, um, some of the issues that uh, stand out as you work with Mongol Americans, but um, there's certainly a huge um, hurdle or barrier to um, to to invite people into a therapeutic uh, relationship and to realize that they don't have to have a low bar on life. That there's more, and there's probably fear on on taking that step. There's probably um, some shame involved in, in a shame-based culture, and, and I'd like to have you elaborate on that. As is, Are there particular aspects of shame that show up in Hmongs that are a little different than Asian, other Asians?
1: Um, I think the, there's that, under, that foundational piece of shame being, you know, uh, kind of used to keep people in their place, or mm. the threat of shame, the threat of losing face. Um, So in, in the Hmong language, shame is really losing face. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that would mean that, I mean, if you do that, then you, you are, should be full of shame. But I think Mm -hmm. the biggest concept that um, the Hmong bring into shame is that it is so relational. Mm -hmm. Shame is relational. It's not about you. It's about your Mm -hmm. family, your mom and dad, your, your clan. Um, you are what you do impacts the reputation of literally hundreds and thousands of people. So the mm-hmm. weight of you know I have to perform well. I have to toe the line. I have to appear as though I am doing you know well. That could be a huge responsibility because it's not about me. It's about the collective.
0: So um, how, how many years have you worked with Hmong Americans in that context?
1: Yeah, so I, my husband and I moved to the Twin Cities in 2001. So it's okay. been 17 years of uh, being in the community. And early on, it was really people who were referred by the courts to get therapy uh, that I would see. So it tended then to be older generation, like first generation
2: Hmong. Um, yeah.
1: And nowadays, it's very much second gen who are seeing troubles in their marriage and are now taking advantage of therapy for that.
0: Mm -hmm. So almost sounds like because it's so collective and relational, maybe there's some things that um, you're beginning to see uh, as a way to help the community rather than just the individuals that come in for a one-on-one conversation.
1: Yeah, so I've, I found that um, if I just do public education,
2: mm-hmm. you know, psychoeducation,
1: go to a conference and deliver a message, that you could sit in the audience and take away you know, training skills and not have anyone know, okay, I need it personally. So that certainly has helped to get the word out about therapy as well as that there are skills that we can learn, that we can all learn. Mm-hmm. Um, I often have to deal with the fact that some of the skills I'm teaching are countercultural.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And is that okay? You know, so I've had pushback on are you teaching us to be more Western?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And in full disclosure, I should tell you all that my husband is Caucasian. So okay. that at the layer of people saying, well, you know, you don't really understand our marriages, our families. And mm-hmm. what you're teaching us is a Western way of communicating. And you know what? In some ways they may be right because when I teach them to, you know, turn to each other and look at each other, that is very non You don't make eye yeah. contact with people when you're mm-hmm. talking to them and, and when you're showing respect. And, and yet I'm saying to them, well, when you do that, how do you feel? And what's the response? And, By and large, most of them would say, I feel validated.
2: Mm, Wow. I would
1: say, okay, it's a new skill. We can learn some things from Westerners, and Westerners can learn a lot from us.
2: Yeah. So there are
1: things in the way that we relate to each other that I do not want to get rid of. Mm. There are certain things that we do that are not healthy and not helpful in our relationships. So I really try to balance it. Um, That's wonderful. Because I've had to learn to do it with my husband, where we've had to kind of negotiate okay, how, how long am I in this relationship and how Western American? Um, and he's had to learn to adjust to be much more collectivist. Uh, and I've had to learn to be more assertive. Um, yeah. So I, I can't help but bring my multiculturalism into my therapy. As well as to help couples say that you know the marriages that worked back in the homeland or back in Laos or Thailand, wherever they're from, they don't work here now because you have all their lots of other alternatives and people are dissatisfied, they are unhappy now because they compare well, my mm-hmm. relationship with that other couple's relationship, whereas, mm-hmm. it must, maybe most relationships look like like that so there was nothing else to compare it to
0: yeah well i'm so glad uh to hear what you're doing and uh hopefully that this episode makes uh, awareness even more widely available mm-hmm. so that people can begin to see and hear and maybe they will take that step of uh, a leap of faith to experience uh, let's let's see how life could be different Mm-hmm. And, and make decisions in that way so uh, as people come to you and I was surprised to hear uh, courts were involved because uh, usually when we talk about Asian American issues there's, there's not courts involved so what what are a couple issues that are uh, particular to monks that you uh, work hard to uh, help heal yes
1: yeah, so I'll talk about the first generation or you know the court related mm-hmm. stuff and then about some of the more contemporary current.
2: Yeah. sure issues. Good. But,
1: Early on, I would only see clients if their children were in trouble, Hmm. whether with truancy or, you know, when in school or delinquency and things like that. Then the courts would require them to have family therapy or parenting skills. And then that's how I would see them. Um, Other situations would be if there was a divorce and it was contentious Hmm. and something happened where someone had to come in and teach them skills before they could proceed or something like that. And So early on, it was very much involuntary therapy. Um, But recently, couples have reached out to me, couples and individuals have reached out to me for help of their own volition because they are seeing that, um, so in the younger generation, they're actually seeing a lot of acculturation issues. Okay. I'm much mm-hmm. more open-minded and Western. My husband is more uh, conservative and traditional. Or my wife is, you know, not, doesn't understand my need to listen to my parents. So it's hmm. things. It's very much relational issues from their both being bicultural and trying hmm. to navigate how, yeah. how acculturated do we want to be in our relationship. Um, And again, I do believe that part of that has come from being introduced to other ways of being. So Mm -hmm. the more exposure you have to different ways of being a couple, you might now get to choose, well, I would rather be a couple like this than like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So a lot of acculturation issues impinging on the marriages.
2: Okay,
0: very good. Thank you for sharing that. It almost sounds like uh, psychotherapy in that context is more about practicing new skills
2: mm-hmm. and
0: communicating with each other rather than doing a lot of introspection and, <laughs> and trying to make sense of a broken narrative, although that's there also, right?
1: It is there. And actually, I mean, once I teach the skills, then we actually go on to talk about the foundation of the underlying, which mm-hmm. is there is a clash of values. Mm-hmm.
0: You know. And then so, earlier you mentioned trauma also.
1: Yeah. And trauma. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a lot to unpack. I start Mm -hmm. with skills so that they have something to kind of hold on to early on. And then Mm -hmm. when you unpack the, you know, I value this and you value that or you're doing this, like going to college means that I will lose face because I don't have a college degree. And so Mm -hmm. then we start to unpack the values of, that shame comes in, right? Losing face mm-hmm. or um, not being man enough or, you know, I'm not, I'm letting you walk all over me as a woman and, and I lose mm-hmm. faith in that now. So there, there's a lot of digging deep into the culture clash that happens when we are faced with multiple cultures that we could take on
0: yeah yeah so uh, I think I heard or i'm inferring for what you said that uh, even successful accomplishing going to college could cause the others to lose face in the community
1: yes okay I, wow i I've known of some women, particularly mm-hmm.
2: women,
1: who stopped going to college or dropped out mm-hmm. of their educational uh, path because it would make the husband look bad.
0: Wow. Mm.
1: Particularly if he wasn't educated. Um, Mm -hmm. So in order to not shame her husband, Mm -hmm. she would make that sacrifice. Um, So again, shame is very relational because what you do impacts my reputation and how people Mm -hmm. see me. Um, Yeah.
0: Wow, wow. Profound uh, challenges there and uh, glad that you're doing the work. Um, as, as we wrap up, uh, Hmong Americans uh, sound like they're not exactly at the place of being featured as model minorities.
2: Um,
0: and they're, they're refugees, they're immigrants, they're just getting acclimated, moving from surviving to thriving. What is it that other Asian Americans uh, can do to advocate and understand Hmong Americans?
1: Yeah, I think for for the longest time, because everywhere we've gone, we've been the outsider, um, that even here in the U.S., being a really small Asian-American minority, uh, we tend to get lumped in with as just Asian-Americans. And so it's interesting that you would mention we're not the model minority, and yet in Minnesota, we have, you know, state representatives, state, state senators that are Hmong, we have very oh. successful Hmong um, doctors, lawyers, and all that, and then it, it it kind of obscures the fact that the majority are still just surviving. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's this duality where we don't wanna focus just on those who are struggling, but the mm-hmm. flip side is can be seen as oh wow in 40 years you've advanced so fast hmm. and so then it neglects the needs of the community and so there's that that tension of when you meet someone who's mom you don't know where they are on, you know on this acculturation spectrum
2: mm-hmm. and
1: just because someone it looks acculturated they dress they speak they you know have a job doesn't mean that in their psyche and in their values and the way they live back in the community isn't very traditional so I think that's probably what I would say to other Asian Americans is have deep conversations because you never know how traditional I guess is the only word culturally traditional someone is Um, and I've certainly learned that in working in doing second generation ministries uh, in a church setting, that the second gen, the parents think the second generation is worlds different than they are. They're not, they're just maybe a step different,
2: Mm. but Mm -hmm.
1: they grew up Hmong, they were taught Hmong values. uh, And again, that collectivist relational component of I need to do things that honor my parents, It's still very deep in second and third generation
0: law. So good to hear. Thank you for your words of encouragement and really commend your work in the Hmong American community. Uh, Dr. Pong Rhodes, uh, thank you for being here on the Erasing Shame podcast. Uh, Stay connected with us at erasingshame.com and you can subscribe and watch on your favorite social media channels. Uh, DJ Chuan signing off and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Erasing Shame. Please subscribe on iTunes or YouTube and like us on Facebook. Share this podcast with someone you care about. For all of our episodes
2: and more, visit our website at erasingshame.com.